The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Paul Rogers. We talked about the Ukraine war one year after the beginning of the Russian invasion. We discussed why the Russian military have been so unsuccessful in their aims, whether the extraordinary scale of Russian casualties will undermine support for Vladimir Putin within Russia, and the likelihood or not of increasing Western military support enabling Ukraine to push the Russian military out of the country. We also talked about whether Ukrainian strategic goals align totally with those of the US and NATO states, and if there was any plausibility to the idea of a negotiated settlement. Finally, we talked about why there is much less clear-cut support for Ukraine in the global south. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books. At this momentous time for global politics, Verso Books brings you radical voices that challenge capitalism, debate the future of the planet, and work towards real political change. Support their radical publishing by becoming a member of their book club. You will receive all their new books every month in ebook format, and there are options to receive a curated selection of books delivered to your home. Their February and March book club reading includes David Harvey, Andreas Malm, the feminist art collective Last Sis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and lots more. And now to today's interview. Paul Rogers is Emeritus Professor of Peace Studies in the Department of Peace Studies and International Relations at Bradford University. He is Open Democracy's International Security Correspondent, and his most recent book is the revised fourth edition of Losing Control, Global Security in the 21st Century. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's episode, then please consider becoming a £3 supporter of the show on Patreon. You can get access to extended versions of this and other PTO episodes at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. So Paul, we're speaking almost exactly one year after Vladimir Putin launched the Russian invasion of Ukraine in what was initially described by Putin as a special military operation that was expected to last days or weeks. Of course, the first surprise was that the invasion was launched at all, which came as a great shock even to many expert analysts of Russia and Putin. The second big surprise was that Ukraine was able to put up such staunch resistance, particularly in the early stages of the invasion when Western military assistance was pretty negligible and again when many analysts predicted an easy Russian victory, an assumption seemingly shared in the West with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky invited to go into exile. What else has surprised you as the conflict has progressed and what do you think can be learned from the failures of analysis when it came to, first, the likelihood of the invasion being carried out, and secondly, the failure of the Russians to achieve their objectives? I think on the first one, it's a difficult one because one senses that, in fact, US intelligence had a a much stronger sense that an invasion was likely, more so than all the independent analysts, because it's clear that they were getting all set up to aid Ukraine in all kinds of intelligence ways. That's been a clear marker almost from the start. 
in terms of the wider issue, um, I was always pretty cautious, mainly having had my fingers burnt on other occasions, I suppose. But essentially, from a very early stage, something was going wrong. And it's worth, if you don't mind, just going back to those first four or five days, because people tend to forget the sequence. What Russia was setting out to do, we know clearly enough, they wanted to take Kiev and install a, a friendly regime. They wanted to control most of Donbass right to Crimea and be in a position to go right the way down the coast as far as Odessa, essentially cut off the entire sea routes into Ukraine. That was the intention. They were not going to occupy the country. They expected to be welcomed in many parts of the country, etc. So they install a friendly regime. And That's right. They install a friendly regime. And then you would have the combination of Ukraine with a much larger population and something of a, a breadbasket, along with Belarus, which was already a, essentially a client regime. And this would sort of push the center of gravity for the Russian outlook, if you like, empire, call it what you will, several hundred kilometers to the west and essentially restore what they saw as the wrongs that NATO had done in the 1990s of trying to press right up to the Russian border. So that was the aim. The way they were going to achieve the first bit, the key bit of taking Kiev, because everything depended on that, was to occupy that Antonov airstrip uh, about 20 kilometers northwest of the central Kiev. Now, airstrip's a false thing. This was a, a huge complex for testing and utilizing these very large transports that Antonov produced, including the, the world's largest. That actually failed. That attempt, which was on the very early morning of Thursday, the 24th of February, failed from the start. And there's a strong suspicion that the Ukrainians actually had a special forces brigade ready and were probably being aided directly by the Americans in terms of what was going to happen. It took 24 hours, not six hours, uh, to take that airfield. And there, essentially, the impetus was lost. There were many other problems, but if you remember, that was a Thursday morning. By the Sunday afternoon, it was clear that things were going wrong. And that was when you had that key speech by Putin, clearly showing frustration, uh, warning sort of the heavens would descend on NATO, implying a nuclear heavens if it persisted in supporting Ukraine. And from then on, uh, there were many failures on the Russian side, which hasn't been anticipated. I think there were so many that essentially uh, Western analysts had assumed that the Russian forces would act with a rather similar capability to Western forces. But what you tend to forget is the Western forces had behaved so appallingly badly and got it wrong so many times before, you know, in Libya, in Iraq, and of course, most famously in Afghanistan. So we shouldn't have maybe been too surprised that it didn't work for Russia either. But it certainly didn't. And really, from the first month or so, it was clear this was going to be a long, drawn-out war. I suppose with any conflict, there's a tendency to read back from the later situation and to think that what occurred was, in some sense, inevitable, was always going to happen, and that we look at the subsequent Russian military failures and think there was never any possibility of their operation being successful. But do you think it was actually a closer-run thing in those earlier stages? I think it probably was, but the, the difficulty is almost from the start... Russia got it wrong in terms of logistics, mainly because it, it misread the mood in much of Ukraine. And that was a, a huge mistake. But again, I say similar mistakes have been made by Western countries. So I think it probably wasn't that close run, even though it, it, it should have been, if you look at it in a sort of dispassionate way at the time. I must admit, I should have gone back and looked at the stuff I was writing at the time for Open Democracy, then I might get a rather bad shock then in terms <laughs> of what I said. But I remember rightly, 
there are a few people who are being cautious right from the start. And they've been broadly proved right. But the real issue is that Russia got it badly wrong. And one suspects from the start that American intelligence were pretty clued up on what was really happening and were ready to do what they could in the short term to aid the Ukrainians. Thinking back to that early period, I mean, I think one peculiarity of the subsequent situation is that we'd come to think of Russia as a state that was punching very much above its economic weight, that it was a state with a powerful military, but a relatively weak economy. Yet the Russian economy has held up to sanctions surprisingly well, with Russian GDP down by only 2% last year, when most people were predicting, with good reason, you know, sort of double-digit contraction. And the projections for 2023 are for actual, you know, a very minor amount of growth of about 0.3%. But that's more, you know, than the UK and, and Germany even. Why do you think that Russia's military strength was overestimated? And, and conversely, why do you think those prognoses of, of a real economic calamity also didn't transpire? Well, on the first issue, I think the, the Russians under Putin had recognized themselves right back in 2005 to 2008, particularly at the time of the attempt to if not gain control, then basically have huge influence in Georgia, that their forces were nothing like of the ability that the military were claiming. Uh, they'd been run down too much over too many years. And Putin appeared to be trying to rectify that over the following 10 years or so, basically by getting more equipment in and all the rest. And they were certainly giving the impression of having lots of very modern stuff. They were very, very effective in terms of the whole sort of uh, armament side, really good public relations. And of course, as far as Western militaries were concerned, that was really brilliant because it meant that they could say, look, Russia is a serious threat. We've got to have more arms to counter it. So there's sort of a, a double impact there. And I think that was one of the very big advantages that they seemed to have. So people misread that. And Putin did as well. I think he'd been probably told a lot by his military we're getting lots of new stuff in. We know how to handle this. And look how the Wagner Group and others have been successful in Syria and indeed to some extent across the Sahel. So if you put all those together, you get the impression of what Putin probably thought with that going through to the West as well. On the wider issue of the sanctions, I think one thing obviously is that Russia was in a stronger position to withstand basic sanctions, uh, simply because of its oil reserves and, and gas and all the rest. But while that was true, uh, and it was in that position, there were some vulnerabilities which are slowly coming out now. And it's also clear that in the long term, Russia is facing some problems. It's lost a couple of hundred thousand of its brightest young people who simply left the country. The sanctions are having specific effects on the military side because a lot of the really high-tech stuff that it was developing and using depended on getting components in from Western countries. And these just are not available. But I think it's also the case that what is happening worldwide is a more rapid move away from the carbon economy uh, and a move, particularly in some key countries, into renewables as fast as they can. While that may not have much of an effect on Russia in the short term, five or ten years down the line, it and other major gas and oil producers are going to feel the pinch. Put those all together and the long-term prospect isn't so good. But short-term, they can survive. And I remember back in the Cold War days, you know, when there was the issue of, you know, how, in order to maintain defence spending, how far would Russians go? You know, would they really pull that belt in as much as we suspected? And somebody said, look, if push comes to shove, they will eat their belts if they're going to stay out with the West. And there's part of the sort of view there that Russia is, if you like, the victim 
and has to be prepared for the long haul. And that has been pushed by Putin right from the very earliest days of the 1990s, when he was starting to be significant, even if he came in at the end of the 90s, because of this long-term belief he's pushed that Russia was treated with near contempt by the West when the Soviet Union came apart. Put that together, and it means that a lot is going for Putin, surprisingly. On that point about the shift towards a post-carbon economy or a world economy in which renewables play a much larger role, in the United States, the green economy has been a very polarised question. Republicans very much you know, tied into the carbon economy and maintaining it and, and, and increasing it as well. But do you think now, because of the role of Russia in the Ukraine war, that policies like the Inflation Reduction Act, it becomes more possible for those to be rallied around on a national basis, not just the Democrats, but by the Republicans as well? It's possible, but I think that's early days yet. Relating it to Russia, yes, you can do that. I think the wider issue, though, is that as climate breakdown becomes more and more obvious. And that's going to be progressive over the next five to seven years, as far as one can tell, with major serious climate disasters. Then the whole idea of the absolute essentiality of moving through to low carbon economies will come through, even though that tends to be really at odds with the whole market fundamentalist or neoliberal side, whatever you want to use, uh, attitude, because essentially that kind of system can't handle uh, making major changes before the problems become really available, before before they become visible. So I think essentially, uh, in the longer term, it may well mean that uh, you know there's going to have to be a lot of reform of the very idea of the the neoliberal idea, which I know is variable in different countries, but still pretty dominant in many parts of the world. So I think that's early, but in the shorter term, inevitably. Russia is going to be affected by this move. The only thing to remember is that in the short term, paradoxically, if we don't get on a handle on climate change, that's going to be grim for billions of people. But as we fail to get a handle on it, it so happens that what well, Russia and Canada will probably be in a more beneficial position in terms of their own agricultures as the climate moves north, so to speak. Going back to the failings of the Russian military in the conflict, so the flip side of Russian weakness is, of course, the surprising resilience of Ukrainian forces who, you know, very much outperformed expectations, and particularly in that early phase when there was relatively little support from the West, aside from the, the, the intelligence support that you describe. Where would you want to place the emphasis? How much do you think the way in which the conflict has progressed has been to do with the weakness of the Russians, or has it been more about Ukrainian strength or, or, or a combination of the two? I think it's actually a combination of the two. And the precise proportions of the combination, if you like, um, are very difficult to tell. I think this is where some very good critical analytical research is going to be needed in the fairly short term. But as far as one can tell, the Ukrainians were expecting a much more difficult time. In the very early stages, after the failure of the Russians to actually take Kyiv, Remember, they did take a lot of territory north, northwest, northeast of Kiev, right through to Kharkiv, and really right the way down, connecting virtually to the Donbass. They couldn't hold it. And it was clear at a pretty early stage that the logistics problems, remember that sort of, was it a 30-mile-long convoy that was stuck, couldn't get off the main roads and all the rest? At a very early stage, that sheer military incompetence meant that as the Ukrainian army realized it could actually cause a lot of damage in the short term, and they had many advantages, I think morale within the Ukrainian army went through the roof, relatively speaking. And that, I think, is the combination. Exactly how that worked out, one can't say. It's certainly the case that Ukraine performed very much better than expected, 
But don't forget that as far as we can tell, the Russians by and large did not expect there to be a great deal of fighting. I think it's, it's not um, apocryphal that some of the key Russian units actually, actually brought in their kit to actually take part in victory parades quite early on. They simply got it quite badly wrong. And as the Ukrainians realised this, then their morale inevitably went up, went up hugely. That early phase, and, and it's continued up until today, you know, we've seen the Russians very wary of deploying their air force to the extent that they're potentially able to. And obviously, Russian air power is a you know, significant and quite fearsome factor in the, the war in Syria. Why do you think the air force hasn't been deployed on a greater scale? Is it to do with that initial belief that the war would progress pretty easily and, and that Kiev would fall into Russian hands? which would seem somewhat plausible in that early phase, but the failure to, to deploy air power has continued up until today. They've much more relied upon missiles and artillery rather than their air force. It is the feeling that if they deploy their air force at a greater scale, they risk losing it, and it's not the kind of material that they can easily replace? That, again, is, is a difficult one to think. If you look at it sort of standing back, within Russian military thinking, going back 60 to 80 years, it was also primarily a land empire. And essentially, whereas in the United States and to some extent in some of the West European countries, air power is much more significant almost from the start. And, you know, Russia does not compare well with Western air power in the strict military sense. So I think it's a question of them always playing for the, the land warfare with big capabilities in bombardment, which they still have and they're using very effectively at present, rather than bringing in lots of Air Force uh, facilities, uh, forces, if you like. But I think related to that is not fearing the destruction of the Air Force, but fearing that pretty there, some of the pretty modern planes getting shot down at an early stage. Um, the psychological impact of that internationally, as well as within Russia, would have been pretty extreme. And one suspects that that was why there was a real caution in putting these forces in. And that has stopped right through. As you say, it's been much more missiles than more recently drones and the rest, which have been used. But of course, where the Air Force has been used is within standoff weapons with the, the bear and one or two other, the backfire and one or two other of the strategic aircraft, but always firing their standoff weapons from outside Ukrainian territory. So I think if you put that together, that probably gives the, the best explanation we got at present, but I'm sure there may be more to come yet. Do you think that will change if the Russians start to have, have real difficulty producing artillery and missiles, which looks like it may become more of an issue for them in the medium term? They're already having difficulty producing the modern versions of their missiles, the really accurate ones. Mm. And that is because of this problem of supply of key components. While that is true, the more basic missiles can still be produced. And what they're proving to be uncommonly effective at is maintaining extraordinary rate of production of the basic munitions, 155, 203 millimeter equivalent howitzers and artillery, that kind of thing, mortars and the rest. And there are reports which I think are probably legitimate that many of their big arms factories are working triple shifts at the present to keep those going. And it is certainly the case that the Russian use of heavy artillery at a much higher level of Ukraine and couldn't be maintained by Ukraine on its own, or even probably the combined production capabilities of NATO countries. So in that area, they got the advantage. What it means, though, is that if you're trying to make progress, to use a horrible military term, see it in terms of progress, against a well-entrenched force, 
as Ukrainians are, of course, then it is incredibly slow. And what you get is something dangerously akin to the stalemates on the Western Front, particularly in 1915, 1916. Going back to your point about morale on the Ukrainian side, how much of a variable is the will to fight, do you think, in any given conflict? Because it seems fairly clear that Ukrainian forces do indeed have better morale. They're fighting on their own territory. They're very much aware of the human rights abuses and the attempted Russification of the civilian population within territory held by the Russians. And of course, you know, they're perceived as winning, even if they're not in a position necessarily to push Russian forces out of the country. Whereas the Russians are carrying out an invasion with a pretty unconvincing rationale and they're the occupying power. Do you think there is this very major divergence in the will to fight on, on both sides? Or do you think that's somewhat overstated? I don't think it is overstated. And in, in fact, one of the problems is the Russian frustration you have, both at the level of the individual soldier right through to middle ranks and higher ranks, is that it has been very difficult to bring this war to operate in any way the way that they expected. And as a result, they get more frustrated, more angry, and you get more use of heavy weaponry and bluntly more atrocities. And I'm afraid that is the same sort of thing you had to an extent in both Afghanistan and Iraq. And you know, if you have an ordinary Russian platoon group that are being really plastered by some sort of Ukrainian unit, and Russia can call up heavy artillery, it will use it in an absolute blanket way just as the Americans would call in firepower. If they were facing a sniper in a tower block in Baghdad, then they would call in a firepower sufficient probably to destroy the, 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 the tower block. And so to that extent, that is proof that the Russians are in difficulty. But I think as far as the Ukrainians were concerned, what has also happened is there have undoubtedly been many atrocities. You get that in any case in war, but particularly this case. And I think that basically is making many of the Ukrainians even more determined to stay with it. The one thing I think one has to be cautious about here is any discussion about morale and what works in a country, um, you've got to be very cautious about. I'm struck in some ways, you know, I don't remember the Second World War, but I remember the very early years after it. And, you know, the way people talked then, yes, it was all, you know, we won and the rest, but there was not a little in terms of the you know, the the, the grey economy that went on as well. And I think one tends to always look at it sort of through rose-coloured spectacles. In reality, yes, in any the class spirit, of warfare, Everybody was all on the same side and uh, in agreement, yeah. Exactly, yeah. yes. Since the beginning of the conflict, the Russian forces have suffered extraordinarily high casualties. The numbers are contested, but according to many estimates, they've lost as many as 200,000 troops wounded or killed a figure that's roughly comparable to the number of casualties suffered by the Soviet Union and the Russian Federation in all conflicts since World War II, including the Afghan and Chechen wars. And of course, the former conflict is widely considered to have been a key causal factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union. How able is Russia to sustain the current level of losses and to continue to mobilise fresh forces? And secondly, how much of a problem are these losses for Putin regarding public opinion within the Russian Federation, given that it will be increasingly common for ordinary Russians to know someone who has been killed or, or injured in the conflict? Frankly, I'm surprised that it hadn't had a bigger effect earlier. But on your first point, can this be maintained? It probably can for quite a long time, but with decreasingly well-equipped and more low-morale conscripts coming through. I think it's a key question. Why is it that all the problems that Russia has 
on the personnel side haven't had a bigger impact. I mean, if I remember rightly, this is going from the sort of memory, I think the total number of deaths in Afghanistan over eight years was something like 10 or 11,000. On proportion, probably 30 to 40,000 pretty seriously injured. And that's a conflict that was described as the Soviet Union's Vietnam, right? It was, it was seen as a real catastrophe. Yes. Now, obviously, the Soviet Union was going through all sorts of phases then. And Gorbachev had come in in 85. He was already by 86 or 87 trying to disengage from the huge expenditure in the West. But certainly by 86, 87, probably before he even came to power, the sharp analysts, of whom there were some very good ones in Moscow at the time, at the US and Canada Institute, for example, they were basically saying, you know, we're going to spend ourselves into an early grave. Exactly what the John Birch Society was saying should be the real aim of the Afghan war. And essentially, I think because of this, you actually had a situation where Russia itself had a leader who basically wanted to get out at a fairly early stage. But it is also the case very clearly that at that time, the impact of the war in terms of young men, almost exclusively Russian men, getting killed in the war, and the effect on the mothers in particular, was pretty big. So the real question is, why is this not happening now with a high death toll? I think, obviously, Putin and Putin's people are better able to control the public mood. Gorbachev had less inclination to, to act as a, a dictator. I mean, he was not an autocrat of the, of the old sort at all, whereas Putin very much is. So things can be maintained under a lot of control, the media and all the rest. So I think that helps, but it still doesn't answer the question. All I think you can say at the moment, and maybe some really good research and some you know, really good criminologists will be able to help us in a year or two's time, is that if you look at it now, uh, Putin has been pretty successful in convincing Russia that this is a war for the future of Russia. Now, there's no way he could claim that at the start, but the more that NATO came into it, the more he could claim it. And it's the constant thing that this is not a Ukraine versus Russia war, this is a, a NATO war against Russia. The reality is that there's an element of truth in it. And this is the difficulty one faces because what Putin is saying has that element of truth in it because month by month, the United States and NATO as a whole, but United States in particular, has played a bigger, bigger role in virtually dictating the pace of the war. And you see this in terms of the weapons that the United States is willing and usually able to provide at particular stages. And that really means that with all the other NATO help, Putin is right to say that this is more than a state-on-state -state war. This is also a proxy war. It's a sort of almost fulfilling of his own prophecy right at the start, which I think in many ways is inevitable. But he is able to use that. He plays on this in terms of convincing Russia that there's no other way out. And Russia itself has actually got to see it through to the bitter end knowing at least they may have to make some concessions, but there won't be very many. The one thing I think one can add is whatever happens in the war in the coming months, if at any stage it gets to the point where the Kremlin and Putin see Crimea affected, that is when I think you have the real risk of an escalation to different sorts of weapons. On the US side, do you think at this stage that even if the US didn't envisage the conflict initially as an opportunity to um, humiliate in the Russian Federation, do you think that is a perspective that, that does exist now in the US and that it's not just sort of right-wing policy circles and parts of the, you know, the military think tank blob, but that actually within the, the Biden administration itself that, that view carries some weight? I think it carries increasing weight. 
Certainly on the sort of the traditional right wing, the people who would have been the prominent in the project for the New American Century back in the 90s, this is a major theme. Essentially, this will do damage in the longer term. But I mean, you can interpret Biden's speech very recently in that line. He's talking about, no, this is the conflict which will determine almost the state of security through to the middle of the century. And this is basically a conflict between good and evil. It's pretty straightforward. Now, okay, that's the rhetoric for the public consumption. But within the United States, and certainly within Britain, there are strong elements who see this as a remarkable, well, opportunity to limit the capability for the long-term Sino-Russian axis of superpower status. And essentially, if the real problem in the longer term, from a, a traditional strategic power perspective, the real problem is China, made even worse if it has Russia as part of it, then if you can at least do a lot of crippling of Russia, then that will help in the longer term. And I certainly think that is strong. The curious thing is, I was talking to an uh, American fairly recently who sort of works in this field, and he said that, well, what you're seeing in a way is what you might call the foreign policy establishment is actually more hawkish than the serving military. And one can distinguish between some of the recent retired military who are very gung-ho about this, and some of the serving military, right up to the most senior levels, who are urging a degree of caution, who are saying that in some way the war may have to end in negotiations. And occasionally that does get through to the sort of the press as a whole. So it's a curious mixture. What I've seen myself, and this is just talking to people who are in the know on these things, is there was certainly a period last autumn when things were going particularly well for the West, or for NATO, etc., that what you saw then was a feeling that we should not even think about the most informal of contacts, sort of pre-negotiation negotiations. Track two diplomacy is, is what it's generally called. That that was not even something to be considered. And I certainly learned that one or two of these groups that specialize in this kind of very early stage work were being discouraged from doing it in relation to Ukraine and Russia. Uh, So the West could see that this was the way forward now and there was a lot to gain. That, I think, has changed slightly because it's fairly clear that it will be almost impossible to completely get rid of the Russians, to use the cruise phraseology, from Ukraine in terms of the territory they hold. It would be immensely costly. So it is just possible, one is looking for straws always, that there might be a possibility of very early stage discussions at some time in the next two or three months. If there were to be any kind of negotiated settlement, what form do you think that would take? Because Ukraine very, you know, reasonably would say, well, you know, which part of our territory do you think we should surrender and and, and allow to be run by the Russian Federation with its, you know, appalling human rights record? And it, it seems doubtful that they would be prepared to accede to Russian demands to effectively be a, be a neutral state that stays out of the Western security orbit. But on the other side, it seems very hard to see how Putin could come to any settlement in which he can save face. I mean, I suppose there is the issue of, of Crimea. Ukraine says that it wants to recover Crimea as well. But one does wonder whether that's an initial position and that in negotiations, they, they might shift on that, given that that's a case where Russia's territorial claims are not quite as outlandish as they are in, in the case of uh, the rest of Ukraine. And you also have in Crimea... And in parts of the Donbass, those two oblasts that you actually do have Russian-speaking majority and to some extent people of a political culture who will be more in favour of Moscow than Kiev. 
So th that is there any. Quite a lot of the people outside of Crimea have actually gone through to Russia over the last sort of six or eight months. And Crimea, I think, does become key. The one thing one has to face, of course, is is a heck of a lot to ask of Zelensky and the Ukraine government. They, they've suffered the grievous effects of this war with so many thousands, maybe tens of thousands of soldiers and certainly civilians killed that any kind of compromise is difficult to see. But the other reality of that is if there was some sort of compromise which enabled Russia to withdraw most of its forces, but to have some sort of small stake, then at least you could avoid um, two problems. One, a Russian defeat, which meant that you would always have a very angry, resentful Russia of virtually any political frame right on your border. It's a very long border with Ukraine. And the second thing is that if you go for broke and say, all Russians have got to leave Ukrainian territory, all the military have gone, this is when you do get near to the risk of some sort of possibility of escalation. And I'm one of those people who rate this much higher than many other people. But once you look at the way things can escalate out of control, it's tricky. And when you say escalation, is, is that equivalent to nuclear escalation? Do you see any any way in which Russia could escalate short of uh, a limited nuclear strike, say? Well, I think the thing is that the three classes of weapons of mass destruction are biological. Well, biological weapons essentially with their current state in most circumstances are not very relevant. That may change, I'm afraid, within 10 years or so because of the developments in biomolecular capabilities. On the chemical side, again, it's of limited relevance. So we are talking more about the nuclear. Now, that does not mean sort of suddenly exploding nuclear weapons. But on the other hand, essentially saying that you may be prepared to do so and to set some sort of deadline is not at all beyond the bounds of possibility. And one has to go back here to the policy of major nuclear states. Britain still has a first-use policy even now. It took nuclear weapons down to the Falklands, Malvinas War, for heaven's sake. And if you look at NATO's policy, going right back to, I think it was 1968, an MC-14-3, which was the basically initiation of what was called flexible response. From the start, a key part of NATO policy was that if it was actually losing any kind of conventional conflict, it would consider going nuclear at an early stage. I remember vividly back in, I think it was 85 or 86, being in a group that NATO invited to go and meet their people to discuss NATO strategy, mixed academics and others. And we were given a morning on NATO nuclear policy, which discussed, you know, circumstances in which tactical nuclear weapons might be used. And I tried to develop this with a, a German senior diplomat who was in the nuclear planning group, seconded to the nuclear planning group, and said, him, well, what kind of situation would exist where you might consider doing demonstration shots? And he said simply, well, supposing we'd been seriously caught by surprise and Soviet forces were pouring over the border from East Germany and really making huge inroads into West Germany and possibly beyond. What we could then consider doing then is maybe detonating high-altitude, low-yield nuclear weapons, probably at a height which wouldn't even necessarily kill anybody, but just so, really to show that we mean business and that they had to re really cease what they were doing. I tried to sort of ask him, well, what if that didn't work? And it got sort of rather unclear as to what the policy would be then. But if you look at what is very clear on the American targeting uh, strategies, and a lot came out in the open literature in the 1980s in this, then essentially the idea of nuclear wars, particularly small ones, was always part of nuclear policy.
And the reality is that is still there. If anything, it is more prominent in Russian thinking than it is in Western thinking. Because if you're trying to claim that Russia is a superpower, only in one narrow way is Russia still a superpower, and that is in its possession of a large and very versatile multi-capability nuclear force. So that is, I think, something one has to watch more than one might otherwise feel necessary to do. Going back to your point about the way in which Western involvement in the Ukraine war is a way of weakening China. So at the Munich Security Conference last week, Wang Yi, China's top diplomat, announced that Beijing would put forward a peace proposal to bring an end to the war. Now that's been, uh, you know, very much dismissed and the expectation is that it won't include anything very substantial. But the fact that that's been announced, does that suggest to you that China is worried about Russia being further weakened through the conflict? And, And presumably China wants to avert Putin's overthrow, given they wouldn't know who would be taking over. And nor, presumably, is is it in their interest for Russia to become a weakened North Korea-style prior state. So do you think it's possible that Xi Jinping could exert leverage over Putin to get him to agree to a negotiated peace on what would be for Russia relatively unfavourable terms, just to get the war ended? I think Putin is certainly the only person to whom he is subject influence, I think probably is President Xi, uh, basically, the, the Chinese political system. They're the only people who really have serious clout in Moscow. Um, They may tend to do that rather tentatively. From Beijing's point of view, if Russia was to more or less lose that war, that would at least make it clear that the key player in the whole Eurasian dynamic is China and not Russia. So that would not necessarily be too bad as far as uh, China is concerned. They would certainly be concerned at what would happen, both in terms of the chaos of an attempt at a... Uh, a coup or something against Putin, and who would follow him. Although they may feel that given the the state of Russian nationalism, whoever followed Putin would probably be no more difficult for them to handle than than Putin himself. So I think to that extent, the the Chinese are probably playing it rather carefully. On balance, I think at this stage, they probably want to see this war end relatively soon because Russia has already been damaged quite enough for their other purposes. And this war is proving very costly. And also, of course, China is no doubt feeling it necessary to build up its own arms capabilities um, at the present time, whereas it will probably like to spend rather more on all the other major economic problems that it has at present. Recently, Western leaders have increasingly voiced concerns that China may start supplying Russia with military hardware. Is there any particular reason to to believe that they would start providing weapons for use in the Ukraine war? Or do you think this is more an implied warning from from the West uh, rather than something that is realistically about to happen? I think it's probably more of the former than the latter. But obviously you can't be sure on this. But looking at that in another respect, I think one of the things that has surprised many analysts is the extent to which support for Russia has not been that low across much of the global south. And this, I think, is a thing which causes consternation among Western politicians. If you see this very clearly from a Western perspective as the good guys versus the bad guys, this is simply not how it is seen across much of the global south. The UN uh, General Assemblies, we've got one, I think, a debate starting this evening, going on tomorrow. Then you will get the, the statements of support for Ukraine coming very strong. But the public mood in many countries is either of disinterest or plague on both your houses, or we've got far more important things to worry about ourselves. 
And that, I think, is causing some consternation in the West. But it, it does mean that in that sense, Russia is not losing out as much as many people, including myself, expected. Uh, and that may have some long-term implications, in fact. It, it, for in the short term, it probably gives uh, the Russian foreign policy establishment a slightly better feeling than they would otherwise have because of the loss of Russia's standing in so many other ways. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.